Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And I guess for this program, I should add, and imbibers, because we have, um, if you're looking for news about booze, this is the place to be. News about booze. There yeah, we go. Yeah, how about that very, one? Very different. Yeah, so, but, absolutely. Um, anyhow, we, we, we roam around some areas of, of the alcohol issue and uh, we're going to talk first of all to one of our favorites is Alice Firing who has an antenna for the out of the way but interesting uh, in in the in the wine business like I've never seen I mean we interviewed her before about um Georgian wines and well we've interviewed her so many that's times George, that's Georgia Asia not Georgia yeah, right. in the United States by yeah. the way so, but anyhow, her latest book is um, thought-provoking, for sure, called The Dirty Guide to Wine. And uh, Alice, I was glad that we could talk to you. Here's Alice. Alice Firing is a frequent guest um, on on the menu because she actually writes a lot of books. <laughs> and they're good books. And they're interesting books. And, and Alice, you find things to write about that nobody pays any other people don't pay attention to. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a, it's what sets me apart, but it's also kind of a curse in a way, or ever since I've been a little girl, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I just, uh, uh, your current one, Dirty Wine Guide. Who, know, who knows what that could be about? Yeah, <laughs> things. Well, actually, but. it's The Dirty Guide to Wine, but I think the first title was I, the dirty wine guy. Yeah, that was a little bit too racy, so the publishing house switched it to the dirty guy to wine. <laughs> oh well, let me. Okay, so it's the dirty guy to wine. Yeah. Well, now, now the, the, among the most interesting things about it is, you, you say that you you decided to start writing this book quite a long time ago. I mean, like years. Ago. Um, <laughs> First of all, why did you think about it, doing it at all, and then why did you wait so long? Oh, you know, I just, when I first thought about doing it, which is, it was a kind of book that I wanted. Everybody talks about the importance of bedrock and why we're planting on limestone or this is uh, granite or this is schist, but nobody really talks about why is it important to the vine and what it expresses. And so it's the kind of book that I always wanted. You know, there's a lot of geology or wine geology books. Yeah, I didn't know you Nothing knew actually that tells you the effect. So I thought about it, and I was like, oh, I don't know. It looks like a lot of research. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of geology. I flunked geology. Oh, did so you really? That was very impressive. Uh, so how about but, you knew about how much you know about geology. I know, but now after being involved with wine for over two decades, I kind of knew, know a lot more about geology now than I did when I was in college. But but the real reason is that I kind of got to a breaking point about all, most of the wine marketing is all about grape variety. Mm-hmm. And as if that is the most important thing. And I've never thought it was the most important thing. Choosing the right grapes for the right terroir is the most important thing. And, you know, Pinot Noir doesn't always have something to say in every place, and neither does Gamay. And I'm also kind of not that convinced that you have to always do a monovarietal Mm -hmm. bottling. So 
I just wanted to do my part to bring the reader and the drinker back to what I think is the most important is where wine was from. And when I started drinking back in the 70s and even in the 80s, this is what was important. Where is the wine from? I wasn't drinking a grape. I was drinking a place. So this was the most concrete way that I could figure out to do it. Okay, now there's a restaurant in Alsace somewhere which sort of got you fired up. Yeah, that was uh, it was a wonderful restaurant um, in the north of Alsace that had a very extensive wine list for wines from the area, and they were all separated according to their soil type. And oh, that's interesting, huh? It was really quite, and, and the restaurant was amazing. So that was really exciting. So, yeah, I'm going to have, you know, like Riesling four different ways and four different soil types. And pretty much all the wines were made naturally, so they were very expressive of place. Yeah, I want to come back to you about that in just a second. But the interesting thing is, and we didn't get to, we did not, I, I will be honest, we did not get to page 225. <laughs> okay. The page, the page 225 is postscript. And it says Alsace stands alone. Now, now, is is that because of this restaurant, or is there some other reason? Well, that was because it has such a mishmash of soil types. Okay, so uh, that that's basically it. So it's one region. You know, you think of Burgundy. Well, pretty much. Yeah, there's a little bit of granite in the south. There's granite. It starts going to granitic, but it's mostly limestone and different. You know, like variations of limestone and clay. But in Alsace, you've got everything. You've got volcanic, you've got metamorphic, you've got sedimentary, and you've got igneous. Everything is in there. It's now just you, a potpourri. You've, you've got another layer as well, and I, and, and I don't think you mentioned this in the book, but you might. There's also a lot of post-glacial stuff. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so there's, um, yeah, Absolutely. So, I mean, so, really, so, so, so they're, they're, they're deposits of just about everything, yes. Scat- scattered just about everywhere. Every, yeah, so it's basically, I couldn't fit it into, as a region, into any of my categories, so I had to give it its own category. There you go. Now, a couple of, a couple of interesting things, and then, and then I'll let you, and then I'll let you go. But th- things I got out of it. And when he says let you go, it means let you loose so you can <laughs> so talk about this. <laughs> so, so could, well, no, one of the, intri- one of the intriguing things, and we just got, we just got from somewhere, I can't remember what it was, we got three bottles of wine, uh, samples that were from Mount Etna. Uh-huh. And you have a you have a lot about Mount Etna because Mount Etna is not only volcanic; it's volcanic. Oh yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's spewing forth the stuff right now. Right. Yeah. No. Lots of lots of amazing uh, basalt and different degrees of degradation. Right. Um, and, it, and then, if you want, to, if you want to know what what underlying rock type winemakers think. They want the most. It's limestone. Yes, that should be another. What do I call it? The supremacy of limestone, or limestone supremacists? Something like yeah. something like. Well, that should be another boon for uh, the UK then, because they have plenty of limestone. But, but, but I'm going yeah. I'm, I'm to set you. I'm going to set you off here. You're probably going to be really mad at me. <laughs> but but, but I, I thought we knew all about this dirt thing because it was called terroir. 
Yeah. <laughs> tell tell me why it's tell our listeners why it's not. It's it's not um, about it's not about terroir. It's about rocks. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, it is, it is about rocks. So basically, we're talking about the bedrock, and we always make the big mistake of calling soil terroir, which really the soil is the topsoil, and it's basically what you farm. But really, you want your grapevines to go down into the bedrock, and that is, uh, you know, it is the nutrition, part of the nutrition of fun, but it does inform the soil on top, but I'm trying to like, am I really answering the question? I don't know whether I am or not. But one of the things that struck me as being extremely important about talking about the bedrock, because the soil actually changes, and the climate actually changes. Yes, and it really but is the bedrock now. is the one thing that is not going anywhere. Right. Uh, that oh, yes, is the yeah. one thing about growing a vine about the place that is not going to be changing. And there is something, the deep rock way beneath the soil that does it. It is part of the terroir, but it isn't the terroir. The whole picture is the terroir, the climate, the top soil, bedrock. And uh, and one can well argue the personality that farms Uh is part of at least the wine's personality, if not the terroir. Here's a but way, here, all of that, terroir is not just about the dirt or the soil. No, sure. I, in, interesting thing. We we met a crazy lady called Jane Ferrari, who's like a brand ambassador for your lumber in in South Australia. Oh, yeah, we, mm-hmm. she did. We, we were going out to dinner with her that evening, we we knew. But we, we what was happening next, immediately, we didn't know. So she said, let's go. Let's go. She put she put some wine glasses and several bottles of wine in the in the back of her pickup truck, and started driving. And when she got to a, the crest of a particular hill, she stopped. And we all we all got out, and she poured wine, and then she said, "This wine was grown from grapes from over there." <laughs> and then the next one, she said, "Then these." Are this wine is made from grapes that are grown over there, in totally the opposite direction. She said, "That's terroir." <laughs> <laughs> she, she, uh, she okay. Yeah, well, but that's, Alice is serious. That's, 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 that's why I wrote this book. Yeah. That is why I wrote this book. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, so the right response after that, and so, and you know, it's interesting that I, I actually more and more when I go to visit people, I'm drinking the wine from that vineyard in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, that's when you start asking the questions, and so, <laughs> you know, so what are the, what, what are the differences of growing here as opposed to there, and do you really taste it in the bottle? One, I talk about um, one example in this about growing Gamay in the Ardèche, and one winemaker, I think, uh, uh, God, what's his name? Jerome, uh, that's his first name. What's, well, forgot his last name. Has Gamay on limestone and granite. Uh, planted the same way, farmed the same way, really adjacent in the same vineyard, but one is on, there's a little bit of granite in the vineyard. And the one on granite comes in at a degree and a half less alcohol. Isn't this That amazing. is really, that's a dramatic example of how 
what you grow and what kind of soil really, really makes a difference in the glass. So, you know, but what you can tell, people always go like the, the classic thing about Chablis and the smokiness. Um, well, you know, you can't really smell terroir. You can actually taste it in the structure, mm-hmm. but you can't smell it. So that's a fallacy. Huh. Well, you point out a lot of fallacies. Let's talk about what you, <laughs> yeah, what, what you, how you structured this book. I mean, you actually dissect all these different areas, terrains, and wine growing regions all around the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and you attack each one, uh, with the facts of what's there. Did you change your mind at all about any of the what we know about the wines coming from each of these? Hmm. Did I change my mind? I learned a lot. I don't know whether I changed my mind. Uh-huh. But I did learn. This is really one of those books that I wrote to learn. It's um, that is, and after having it fact check, one thing that I'll never, you know, mistake again, like I said before, is soil for bedrock. And a geologist who was very kind to go over it, like, <laughs> yeah. do not thank me if you don't change this in the book because I don't want my name associated with it. Soil oh, really? is not bedrock. Uh, but no, I didn't change. Well, I, you know, it, the, some of the things that I learned is that, no, you feel the bedrock and where a wine comes from in the way it expresses acidity. Mm-hmm. And that is something I didn't know before. No, I, now, I, I, does knowing this make me a better person? I don't know whether it does. And that's one of the things I would have guessed, actually, <laughs> that it would affect the acidity. But, um, yes. Yeah. But um, the, are there, I mean, what about, I'm trying to say, so each type of grape Right, uh, may react differently to the the bedrock. Is that yes. possible? So yeah, and that'll have to do with the the pH of the soil. It'll have to do with um, well, first, but we do, you know, at the beginning of the book, I I do make a point that a lot of stuff really can be changed by farming. So it's hard to really be completely absolute. But yes, it has a lot to do with the alkalinity of the bedrock. I remember meeting what I, th- what I thought was that when, when we went to the Loire Valley. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the, the Loire Valley, it's all, it's all, it's all Chenin Black, but, but down towards Anjou, it's mm-hmm. very, it's very, dip, very different in Touraine. It's very, di- it's very different than right. the wines that come from the flinty area of Sancerre. Mm-hmm. And I, I, re, I recall think, thinking that I sensed the flint in the wine because mm-hmm. it was really dry and really sharp. Mm-hmm. But, but if you think about it, that's really not possible because flint's really dense. <laughs> and one, uh, one of yeah, the things, it one is of, extremely dense, but you know, there, there's a little bit of... There's not a great deal of flint. There is some flint, especially in Savonnière, which is in the Anjou region, but mostly it's going to be schist yeah. around Anjou, and that's just such a brilliant region to do side-by-side tastings. 
of Shannon Blanc. So do Shannon from um, Anjou Blanc and Shannon from you know, Anjou Noir. So it's just amazing to do the Shannon on Limestone next to Shannon on Schist. And then you get the verticality of the limestone and the horizontal nature in your mouth from the schist, much broader flavors. And there are a lot of reasons why that tastes different, not just because of the bedrock, but um, but it is fascinating. It's really great to see the difference of side-by-side regions. Are people know, beginning to do that? I mean, to, to schedule well, tastings at, like that? Well, I, I see more and more. I know that over in England I've seen some advertisements for... Dirty wine tastings, which I'm pretty sure comes directly from my book. Oh, that's <laughs> fine. stuff. That's great. And at least now people realize that Anjou really are two separate. You know, you've got, uh, you know, the Cabernet you have from Chinon is very different from the Cabernet you're going to have from Anjou as well. So that is, you know, it's heightened that awareness about these are really two different. So when you buy wines really don't expect anything similar. The kind of thing you're describing and, and, yes. and emphasizing, um, is this something that wine growers pick up by instinct or they do they know to look for well, it? Well, they're going to know as soon as they work the soil because the thing about schist, it's really, you know, it's not as hard as flint, but it sure is hard and it's really one thing that makes a big difference and this is something that I've learned a great uh, doing this. When you go to the Loire and you have these beautiful limestone uh, cellars and coves, and they're deep, and you don't have them deep in Anjou because you cannot dig down into the schist enough to build a deep cellar, and that has tremendous effect on the taste of wine as well. And so then you start thinking, we're talking about bedrock, but it's not just what the vine is grown on, but the surrounding area above ground as well. So building a wine and a cellar in limestone is completely different than a cellar in schist, and it's going to have an effect on the wine. And whether a wine goes through malolactic fermentation, is it a warmer cellar, that kind of thing. So it starts you thinking in a much broader concept of what is terroir. What effect does that bedrock have to do everywhere? I thought the Loire Valley was particularly interesting, the, the mainstream part where all the chateaus are, because because the the vines are growing on top of the cellars. Mm-hmm. And, we, and, yeah. and we, we 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 went in one of them. I, you, I don't know if you remember this yeah. one. I think it was near Tours, and they had a few bottles left from the previous century. <laughs> yeah. And they they only open they only open them for for births. Yeah, I, think. I remember. I think they said. But it's really funny to... Yeah, near tour, you have some really remarkable wine cellars. You know, I can't help but think, Alice, that this book has to be a revelation to the whole wine industry, if we can call it that. <laughs> I mean, it, but is it being taken like that? I wish it had been taken like that. Um, I think that it has made... It has had an effect. I think that since then I'm seeing a, a lot more attention on wine lists 
given to soil types. I've seen a lot of seminars being given. I see um, there's a lot more mention and a lot more deepening of the concept of what terroir is. But I don't think it's really had the mass market effect that I would like to. But it's it's a beginning. You know, certainly there are a lot of people doing work on, on terroir. And, but another thing that I really would have liked or would like this book to impact is to have wine growers consider more what they're growing on what kinds of soil. And maybe the world doesn't need Cabernet and Chardonnay grown on no matter what, no matter where. Yeah, well, that's just going to happen anyhow because of climate change. (laughs) You know, we just don't need more. We don't. You know, we need more authenticity, not just more. Okay, what's a Chardonnay? What does it mean? What does Chardonnay mean? I have no idea what that means. Hmm. It means a style, right? Yeah, I guess so. Well, you, you you probably should send 100 copies to Cal Davis. (laughs) <laughs> I know. You know, it's one thing that I, like, why have they never, I guess maybe because of my first book I did a chapter on UC Davis, but maybe I should approach them. I would like to give a talk. Yeah, you should. That's I mean, where you make a difference. Yeah, but, but you absolutely should. I'm surprised you don't. But they're not. Yeah. But they're not winemakers. They're chemists. <laughs> they're, exactly. Maybe that's why. But they, and that's the reason. You know, I'm, sure, still, I'm sure that's the reason why. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think they didn't like what I wrote about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they but their their student body is changing, and there are a group of people making wine together, and their wine is under the label of Les Lunas, uh, Chant, and Diego. I think actually it's just two of them making wine now, and. They make pretty much natural wine out of California. Yeah, I was I just going to say that the I think the increase of interest in natural wines is going to be a bolster for, for your theories about this. Totally. But they met at UC Davis. And not only did they meet at UC Davis, they learned about natural wine while they were in UC Davis. And this is the generation that's going to be making fabulous wine because they're schooled and they want to make authentic wines. They didn't learn about it in school, (laughs) but they learned about it while being there, and it changed everything for them. And this is the next generation of winemakers that we're going to be seeing, and who, by the way, all read my books. I'm very happy about that. (laughs) Oh, that's very exciting. You know, see, that's what I said. It's revolutionary. Yes. Yes. Oh, but you do that all the time. <laughs> you know? You're, you're the, the most esteemed disruptor I've known. <laughs> well, thank you. You. You, got, you got to you got to buy this book. There there are there are a few books about wine that are out there. Like one we really like called Between the Vines. You've, uh-huh. you've probably read you've probably read that. A couple of couple of wine books of that ilk. And this this is a classic that's going to join those on the bookshelf of people who are really interested in exploring uh, the beverage that they love so well instead of just slopping it down and drinking it. Yep. And again, it's Alice Firing, which is F-E-I-R-I-N-G, and The Dirty Guide to Wine. And Alice, you've got a website for the book, don't you? Uh, no, actually. You know no. what? I've never... I just have my... I have my newsletter, the firing line, but I don't. I it's kind of like the 
No, I don't. I have a Facebook page. Okay, um, well, how I about Facebook the, pages. How about us know how you get on that newsletter list? Um, the newsletter is a paid subscription, and it is all about natural wine. So it's basically where to eat, where to drink, uh, some really geeky natural wine topics on filtering or wine terminology, and a lot of wine recommendations. And that's the firing line. The f e i r i n g l i n e dot com, and the information is up there. And there's still a little bit of a blog up there for free. Um, but I've been I think a lot I was of reading that, into yeah. the newsletter these days. But yes, I really need to um, start thinking about getting a website up for the next book. Yeah, and your next your next book should be about the wines of Britain. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work with you on it if you like. Okay, good. <laughs> thank right. you. Thank you so much for Love joining us on the main Alice. And Fantastic. It's been too long. I know. And, and great success so, with your book and with revolutionizing the whole realm of, of viticulture. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So now, so now you know from the horse's mouth or wherever you like to think you got it from, here's Alice's verdict on where wines really come from and how they get, what they really taste like. And uh, I don't know if you noticed on the way through, but this is, this is a book. She, she said she started to write this book 25 years ago because <laughs> she felt that it needed to be written. And as as always... It's a very interesting take on a, a subject that in itself is interesting. So we, th- we thank Alice for her contribution, and uh, we'll be back after a short break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, a true success story is that of Cameron Mitchell, the restaurant group, and we're going to be talking about But Cameron Mitchell is actually not just the name of the restaurant. He's a real person. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he, in fact, he was in high school with, with, with Anne's cousin Nancy's husband, Bob. Yeah, Russell. And, yeah. and he, he has something like 50 restaurants around the country, all kinds of different formulas, all, all very successful and but, but we're going to be talking about another project, a cooperative project, uh, with a watershed, um, a distillery project. Um, so, well, so, it gets a little complicated. Yeah, but so what listen is, to hold, yeah, Ryan hold, Valentine. Hold on a second. So, so water, watershed is a multifaceted distillery Sorry. in the state capital of Ohio, Columbus. And, uh, the, well, the best, best thing to do is let Mr. Valentine, Ryan Valentine, Ryan Valentine is, is speaking on behalf of the project and the Breck Cameron Mitchell restaurants. We're going to be talking to um, 
Ryan Valentine, uh, the director of beverages for um, Cameron, Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group. Um, and uh, we're very familiar with the restaurant group, but we didn't understand um, what the whole project was. And I'm going to ask you, Ryan, to explain. The first thing I knew was through a publicist that you you had one of a, a gin win a double gold medal at a competition on the West Coast. And then before I know it, I'm into a project that I never knew existed. Can you tell us what this is? this cooperative project between Cameron Mitchell Restaurants and Watershed Distillery? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Watershed Distillery is a local company in our home market, and, they, you know, they make, they, they're a distiller. And, That's um, Columbus. In Columbus, Ohio, right. And so, you know, in the beginning, when they first started, um, I kind of paid attention to their products from afar. And then I started to get to know the guys that owned it, and we were just talking, you know, well, what you know, I was trying to kind of feel out and figure out where I thought this local thing was going because local was really blowing up in all kinds of ways. And mm-hmm. so we ended up having some nice dialogue. I ended up putting them in a Ramos Gin Fizz with one of their um, with their um, their bourbon barrel aged gin because I thought it'd be really interesting to have you know a lot yeah, of body yeah. on a drink that's usually a little lighter yeah. personality. And then so I got to know them better, and we through 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 having some conversation, we were just sitting there talking one day, and and um, we were talking about, I said, well, what, what's in it for me to just put, put your stuff on the shelf? I'm like, what, why don't we do something more creative than that? I said, why don't we do something, like, why don't we co-brand and create something for one of our restaurants? And we were getting ready to do the Guild House, and Guild being group of artisans. The whole idea was, with the restaurant, was sort of our, our kind of take on a farm-to-table, and that brings local into your, into your mind, et cetera. So... That's what we, that's where it started. So, well, why don't we do something that's just for the Guildhouse that we make a spirit that's you know specific? Um, and they were like, "That sounds great," and we decided to do it. So, about six months later, uh, through all kinds of time and trial, we we what we did was it was myself, Andrea Hoover, who is our beverage operations um, manager. She works with me on the beverage program on our side, on the CMR side, and and the two owners of of watershed and we got to working on it and what we did was we ended up selecting seven different combinations of botanicals and all seven of them obviously had juniper berry with coriander as a sidecar and then from there we went forward with other things we wanted it to be a a mixology friendly gin we didn't want it to be too juniper heavy we wanted it to be a little softer a little bit more um citrus and stuff so we selected seven different combinations the one that we end up liking um, so they made seven raw distill or seven distillates, seven gins, if you will, and um, gin number seven happened to be the one that we liked, and it contained cinnamon, nutmeg, um, Seville orange or bitter orange, Meyer lemon, um, tangerine, rose petal, and it, it just came out really, really nice. So we know we knew we we, we knew we wanted to do a post maceration. So in distillate number seven. The rose petals were actually in it, but we did a post-maceration with rose petals for one, and it didn't make that much much of a of a flavor impact. We did um, we did one with um, some lavender, and that was it, it. Just tasted a little bit soapy. It wasn't quite like as nice as we wanted. Okay, I'm okay. Uh, can you hear me now? Okay, so Andrea's idea of the three ideas was, or she she said. 
let's let's do a post maceration of chamomile. And I said, I don't know if that'll work out real good, but we'll go ahead and try it. So I didn't think it was a very good idea, and of course, it was absolutely a great idea. So she she uh, suggested we do the chamomile, and we did the chamomile. Of the three finishes, it showed up really really nice. It added a, a floral component, so the gin really you have. A, you have um, a floral element when you when you smell it, but you can also smell like the the really nice tangerine, the cinnamon. You can get a lot of different things off the nose. So it it's uh, it came out great. So it comes out. We we sell it at the at the guild house for a long time. And a friend of mine, Tony Adabuganum, comes to town. Who is? Um, oh sure, we we we're gonna, we're gonna be Tony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so could t- you Tony could comes to town and I say, hey, you've got to try this gin we made. And we make. He tries it. And he sets his glass down. He looks at me. He goes, Ryan, you need to send this to San Francisco. This, <laughs> this, this, this could, this could win. I go, come on, Tony. You got to be kidding me. He said, no. I mean, and, and obviously he's a very prominent and knowledgeable man when it comes to all things like this. And um, I said, okay, well, let's. Uh, I, I'll, I'll talk to guys and tell them that we should send it in. And then the next thing I know, Jackie Zyban from uh, Old Forester was in town. Who's their master taster, she'll at some point in the not too distant future probably be the master distiller, and she's great. So she tastes it with me, and she just sets her glass down. And she goes, "You're stupid if you don't send this to San Francisco. This is unbelievable." So I, I circle back to my buddies at Watershed. I go, "We've got to send this to San Francisco and see if it can, you know, make some noise there." And so, sure enough, we sent it to um, San Francisco. And then I get a phone call from Dave Rigo, one of the owners at uh, Watershed, and he said to me, he said, Ryan, what does Michael Phelps do, you know, at least twice in a uh, swim meet? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, the gin got double gold. We just found out today. <laughs> so it, it ended up getting yeah. double gold. No, you better explain two things. One, I'm not sure I'm clear on the guild house. And secondly, it, it, what was the competition in San Francisco? So the competition, what, what was the first question? I'm sorry. Well, what is the Guild House? Oh, okay, the Guild House is one of the restaurants in the Cameron Mitchell uh, restaurants portfolio, and it's a, it's a really posh, um, nice sort of farm-to-table um, restaurant with very composed chef, um, very refined chef-composed dishes and really cool cocktail program and a nice wine list. Okay, and the competition in, in San Francisco is... The San Francisco Spirits Competition, which is the largest spirit competition in the world, and I would I would venture to say, potentially the highest regarded, or uh-huh. is at least very highly regarded. It without, is. You know, one it of is. The two. Yeah. And no, it's right up there. There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it it was an honor, and uh, it was really cool to to do that. Um, it was really fun to work on a project with another company. It was really fun. Um, the whole way through, it was one of the funnest projects I've ever done in my in my restaurant career. It was really. Was really uh, a fun thing to to do, and and it won double gold, which means every judge has to give it gold, and it won best gin. Uh, and that's um, I don't I don't know how many gins were there, but I would suspect several hundred were in the competition. So um, it's pretty pretty neat that it, it, it happened. And then so we're friends with those guys. So when we get back to Columbus, or, or you get back to the hearing from hearing about this, and um, we just started talking. I said to them that hey you you need to you, this can't be an exclusive guild um guild house gin if you don't want it to be i'm fine leaving it that way because it, that's what we intended it for but 
if this could be an opportunity for them to continue to build their reputation as a gin house because they already have a bourbon barrel aged gin and they have their four peel gin, their original, and then they could put this in the stable. If, if that could help them grow their, their gin business and their overall business, then I didn't want to be standing in the way of that. So they, they um, um, are now, we just finished, or they just finished redoing the label. It's now called Guild Gin instead of Guild Series. Which is what we'd called it, and it's it, they're they're going to try to you know take it to market to a broader market. So now the, the rest of these in the line are they exclusive to your restaurants? So the Guild Series Gin was exclusive to our restaurants, or if you wanted to buy a bottle, you could go to their distillery until about the last thirty or forty days. Now they are they're going to try to sell it um, in whatever markets they do business. Um, the bourbons that we made with them are only available at the barn. At, at where? At the barn. We have a, a steakhouse called The Barn. Oh, okay. okay. So they're not for general ones. For, uh, 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 nobody else can get them. Right. In Ohio, you can't. we can't sell any of those spirits to go, um, so we can't sell anyone a bottle. Um, and we don't sell it at their distillery. So the only place in the world to get the bourbons that we make um, – with them are at the um, at the barn. Oh my goodness! Well, we feel pretty we feel pretty special because because we got some and we didn't have to go to the barn and we didn't have to go to Columbus. <laughs> but but ser- seriously, these these guys is it Dave and who's the other one? Greg. Greg, Dave, and Greg. I mean, how did they learn all this stuff? I mean, they they do they're doing things. With spirits that I, that I never heard of before. I mean, they, um, they couldn't have made it up. Where did they learn? Well, the recipe for the Guild Series Gin was something that Andrea and I worked on with them. So most of that was um, the ideology came from us on that, and they're 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 great at the distilling side, and that that's how that came together. The bourbons um, um, were my idea to get a buddy of mine to send some barrels in from Napa and experiment with what what it would do with bourbon. We were all real nervous. We didn't know how it would go, how good it would be. Um, and we got together once a month on Friday um, to t- check the barrel, make sure it was coming along nicely, and it was kind of a fun process to, oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to go through. And, and it took a full year for the Cabernet one to mature, and then now we're in the Pinot Noir barrel, and it's um, it's delicious. So... It took both both grapes uh, varietals barrels took about twelve months to get right where we wanted. We didn't want it to get over, and we didn't want it to be under flavored from it. So, let's, um, but, but let, there, go ahead. Ryan, Ryan, let's back up just a second because because there's there's a fundamental different differentiation be, behind these these bourbons that you just sort of glossed over really quickly because the. The the original bourbon is made, I guess, the good old traditional bourbon way, in in uh, with with an appropriate mash bill, and uh, um, being matured, aged in new American oak barrels. But but then you went to the next step, which is would you call it an infusion? I would just say barrel aged. So it's you're right. First, it's made as a and. Within the guidelines and the rules of a bourbon, um, one thing that's unique about their grain mash is that they use Ohio spelt, which is it just makes a, a little bit more of a unique. Um, oh, there you go. Okay, good. Um, 
But in, in addition to that, once they're so they just make their regular bourbon, and then we basically take their bourbon and they just fill this the this Cabernet barrel uh, up, and it just sits in that that second oak barrel for another year. So it's it's the only difference between their bourbon and and the the one we're doing is that time in that in that wine barrel. Okay, but but it's but it's not it's not a it's not a distillation process. It's a it's a sit there and pick up some flavor process. Exactly right, and, and it, exactly, and it just picks up some. It it, it pushes those those really really um, subtle, um, shy fruit flavors that are in in bourbon. It kind of pushes those up to make them easier to to taste, and then it adds on the back end, just like a nice red wine has a long finish. It adds kind of a long, um, layered finish to trying the bourbon, which makes it really, really interesting. Now, this is, these are not the only adventures, because you have, you have a character in Columbus who's a doctor who likes Nocino. Well, that was the, funny. The, <laughs> the Italian nut spirit, so, so I guess he, he cruised into the, the story one day and said, I need you to make me some Nocino, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm jealous of the fact that I can't get any. <laughs> How did that happen? So I, they've told me that story, and that's exactly what it was. A, a, a doctor had a recipe from Italy from a family member or something along those lines, and he came in and he said, I, here it is. It's on a piece of paper. I, 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 don't, I don't want any money for it. I don't want it, but it, this is a great recipe for um, a black walnut liqueur or a nocino, and they ended up making it, and then they refined it. The second year they made it, it was it was even better, and it's it's delicious. And um, I've even used it in a a little tinky bit of it is in a Manhattan that we have at our Avenue Concept, and that's kind of a it's kind of a nice. It just adds a flavor that you don't really know what it really is. Um, it just adds another layer of flavor. Pretty yeah, interesting stuff. We had an, we had an interesting taste sensation just a few months ago. We, we were featuring rum. And we, f- we found someone who was infusing their rum by, by storing it in old vermouth bottles. I mean, old vermouth barrels. So, so that, I mean, that's another variation of the same kind of theme of, of l- looking for a second stage to add something different, to add some interest. Yes, that's cool. And that, that makes me think of something else we did with, with Watershed that was kind of fun for our Pearl restaurant, which is kind of a beer, uh, uh, more of a, a gastro pub, and there's a, a pretty cool beer focus in there. We took w- Watershed makes apple brandy, and everybody w- everybody wants to age uh, bourbon in some kind of or age um, age things and uh, beers in, in bourbon barrels. But I I kind of started thinking, you know, people are going to want to try something after that. What what's what other kind of barrels could get in play? And I told them when that when they were done with some of those those apple brandy barrels, I'm like, I I need to. Uh, you need to um, um, let me have uh, one. You let me need to get me one of those because I'd like to make a beer with it. So we ended up, ended up making a blonde ale with a local brewer that we that we soaked in the ex bourbon or the ex brandy barrel, old uh, apple brandy barrel, <laughs> and and it really came out really great. It was you know that crisp stone fruit from the apple you know that was coming out was uh, you know was a, a, a more delicate kind of a, a addition of of to to beer than like a bourbon barrel would 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 do and it was it was a fun it was fun to just we only made one you know we just made one barrel but it wasn't a ton of beer but it was a ton of fun to to try it out 
Now, apple brandy is Calvados, right? Yeah, exactly right. So it's the French, the French spirit. So they, yep. so, so they were making that too. What? How did they get the idea of making that? I'm, all, I'm wondering what they're going to do next. They, I think they got the idea to make that by um, there's Ohio is a great place for um, apple cider in the fall. Oh, okay, got it, and got so it. So they 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 found a farm and bought a bunch of apple cider from from them, and and next thing you know, they were they had a bunch of barrels of apple brandies um, aging in their in their um, Rick House, and it's 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 delightful. They came out with it about less than a year ago, probably six months or okay. ten months ago. Now, they're, they're using pot stills, right? So they're small, they're small scale. As as they're putting something through, they 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 have it for a certain amount of time, and then relatively quickly they start on something else. They actually have a column still and a oh, pot they do still okay, there. all right. Yeah, they they added a, a column still after they they had a pot still. They bought a bigger pot still, and then they bought a column still. That's one of the trickier things for those guys that get into the spirit businesses and or the beer business when they're when they're they're small it's like they you know the equipment is extremely expensive so it is. they have to kind of like you got to cross your fingers and hope that you scaled your equipment correctly for where your business is going to be and you didn't overshoot it or undershoot it by too much because both of those are bad things well how widely distributed is the uh, watershed stuff I know it's in Ohio. I know they've, um, they're in, uh, like, Georgia. I know they're in New York. I don't know how many states total they are. They are in off the top of my head. Well, I certainly hope they capitalize on this double gold. Yeah, I think they, I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, they already have two great gins, and that's what's neat about what they're doing is that, you know, you've got, they could be known as a gin house. Three completely different gins. Um, and could be pretty neat for them. Mm. Now we never we didn't even talk about the vodka, right? Vo- yeah. vod- vodka made with corn and apples as the as the ingredient. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like we like that one. Now tell me this: uh, since we have you on the phone, is um, I've kind of lost track of how the whole range of Cameron Mitchell restaurants. Especially since he's an old school buddy of my cousin's husband, I should I should know this. Tell us where Cameron Mitchell's restaurants are and what are they? You have different concepts. We have we have restaurants from the from New York to California. We have fourteen different concepts. We have um, an American bistro in Columbus. We have a, a fine diner that we have three of them called Cap City Diner. We have an Italian yeah. You had one of those in Pittsburgh, didn't you? Um, we did, we did a number of years ago. Yeah, and a fish house you had here. Yes, we sold, we sold 19 fish markets and three um, steakhouses to the Ruth Chris Company about 12 years ago. Okay. Oh, okay, all right. Um, but we still have two martini restaurant or one one martini restaurant. We have um, a um, another Italian concept called Marcella's, which we have three of those now. One in Denver. Two in Columbus. We have a fine dining restaurant called M in Columbus. Uh, Molly Wu's, an Asian bistro in Columbus. Um, we have a Hudson Twenty Nine concept in Columbus, which is really um, a, a really nice, like uh, upscale um, American Grill type concept. We have the Pearl, which I spoke of as a gastro pub. We have the Barn, which is the, ste- the steakhouse um, that I spoke of. We have the Guildhouse, which we talked about. Um, 
we have the avenue, which is the place that has the Nochino in the Mar- in the um, in the Manhattan, um, and we also have. Let's see. I think that's it. Oh, we have Harvey and Ed's, which is a um, a really cool, updated version of a of a New York um, style deli. And we are in the works of making a new restaurant called Del Mar. Um, or developing a new restaurant concept called Delmar, which will be um, in Columbus in April of this year, with also a rooftop bar on top of the same building, a bar restaurant called Lincoln Social. And then, but those are all our Columbus and some other parts of the country, but the biggest thing we have is we have 15 Ocean Primes, and those are in markets um, starting on the West Coast in Los Angeles, we're in uh, we're in Beverly Hills. We're in Phoenix. We're in um, Denver. We're in Dallas. Um, we have two down in or three down in uh, Florida with Naples, Tampa, and Orlando in play. We have Troy, Indianapolis, and then we have some Eastern Seaboard stores: Washington D.C., Philadelphia. Boston. It's a huge City. empire. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. believe it. Now you have you're in charge of the beverage programs of all these places. Yes. Good yes. grief! You must be exhausted. Well, it, I, I do have Andrea, and we work together on on a lot of these things. But you know, I, it's all we've ever known is to have a lot of concepts, and I think it's fun. I think I would probably be bored if I worked for a company that had one wine list, one cocktail program. Oh, go, that would going. be that would be that would just be boring. Now let, let's do this. Let's let's speak the Cameron Mitchell and the Watershed URLs into the program here. We'll put them up on the website as well. But just just in case people say I got to go there right now, where will they find details about all the concepts? No, no. Well, Don't you have a company there be, website? There must be a single URL that. Well, yeah, if you go to Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, all the concepts are listed on there, and, and um, you can see all the menus and pictures of all of them. It's a very user-friendly um, website that really showcases everything that you'd ever want to see. And is it CameronMitchellRestaurants.com? Mm-hmm. And what about what about the Watershed guys? Do you know theirs off by hand, offhand? I don't. You don't. Okay, not not to worry. Now tell me this. I mean, how are you native to Columbus? Yes. Okay, and um, you. How did you get into this? Well, Beverage. I. I um, that's a great question. I I was working my way through the company as general manager at the time, and the week after nine eleven, Cameron called me and he said, "Hey, Ryan." He said, we have a job for you in the home office. We are going to, um, we need someone to teach all the management classes, so you're going to have to do that. He said, we need an operations person to help interview chef and general manager candidates. And he said, and David keeps getting calls about the about the um, beverage program, and you love wine, so you're going to have to do that too. <laughs> and I said, okay, great. And so the job description became director of training and beverage and it was sort of like a great opportunity to get a C in two jobs because it was a little too big and too many things to to get as deep as we we wanted so the company grew a little bit and we brought in um, a, a training person 
And because Cameron said, what do you want to do? Do you want to do the training or the beverage? And I said, I'll take the beverage. <laughs> and um, I, I like the beverage because it, it, it covers more things that are interesting. It's not just... It's not just writing a wine list, but it's the costing of it. And it's like seeing what's interesting about um, what, how markets embrace this or that. And it's the costing, it's the pricing, it's our inventory level. So a lot of the business pieces, but then to be able to try to be creative and create cocktail programs and wine lists and stuff like that, it was, it was very intriguing to me to stay in that. So it had business functions and other things that just made me want to do it. And I knew I would still be training everybody about the wine and the cocktail program, et cetera, at the time. So I didn't think I was really giving anything up that I didn't want to. Well, congratulations uh, on your double gold, and I hope you make hay with that. <laughs> and 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 you must you must you must come back you must come back on and talk some more about the restaurants when we've had a chance to try a couple. Great, would appreciate, but happy to. Thanks so much. Thanks, and, and happy name day coming up for you, Valentine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Now, of course, it it wouldn't be entirely, well, it wouldn't be even close to fair, if having featured a wonderful distillery in Columbus, Ohio, we didn't do something closer to home, because Pennsylvania was the start of liquor distillation in these United States. They even had a war about it, yes. about the taxes related to it. And there's been a development of distilleries here in our home city that's been because going on. the laws were changed, the state laws were yeah, changed. Yeah, and it's been going on for probably... About ten years led, but led by people like Boyd and Blair Vodka, and uh, who's who are the whiskey people? And Wiggle Whiskey. Wiggle Whiskey and uh, um, the. And, and, and there are more, but one one of the more is is not only a, a fascinating distillery story; it's also a story about how the founders are making it into a like little sort of entertainment complex. So let's first of all. No, yeah. I call it a third place. It's, go ahead, go ahead, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I would call it a third place because it's more than just a distillery. Absolutely. It's also intended as a gathering place, a jazz venue. Uh, you could mix your own cocktails. They'll teach you how. It, there's uh, The place is a gorgeous renovation, but let's listen. And, and they make all kinds of stuff, too. Yeah, well, I mean, we had a really nice interview. It was uh, over half an hour, but something got quirked up on the uh, recorder. Something, something quirked. Yeah, and uh, we interviewed Mark Wilson and Black Ragan- uh, Blake Raganti, who are the partners in this venture, and we seem to have lost all of Mark's, and we've been waiting for Blake to get back to us the week. But in the meantime, we thought we'd bring you the news while it's still fresh that uh, we now have this wonderful new distillery in a thoroughly lovingly restored 1904 built horse stable in the strip district it's called kingfly spirits and the symbol the logo uh is the monarch butterfly which we're all concerned about these days well let's listen okay, to what we yeah, have we're gonna we're gonna get mr uh, blake Raganti in there okay right away 
Okay, we're, okay, we're, we're live at Kingfly Spirits in Pittsburgh's Strip District, and Anne wants to take over the microphone. Actually, I don't, but I do just want to bring a little piece here, is that I knew the previous occupant of this, this uh, space, and uh, when I walked in the door, there was such a transformation that I gasped, and the more I look at it, the more about it I love. Uh, so we're going to be talking to Blake Raganti, um, who I discovered, I think, on Facebook, I'm not real sure, uh, and Mark Wilson, his partner. Um, they are both musicians, which is how they met. And as we kept talking, of course, typical Pittsburgh, um, there were t 10 million other connections as well. But let's start, first of all, with what this is. It is a distillery. And I think I mentioned to Blake earlier that I have this feeling that Pittsburgh is now moving back into a central hub of, of distillation uh, resources. Um, Blake, do you want to outline what it is, the concept? Absolutely. So, so Kingfly, Kingfly Spirits is uh, first and foremost a distillery, um, but it's much more. But it's much more than that. Um, we, we have a tasting bar, but the tasting bar is much more than a tasting bar. It's a full-fledged bar to really showcase the spirits that we're making in-house. Uh, but we've also made available other spirits from Pennsylvania, beer from Pennsylvania, and wine from Pennsylvania. So in effect, we have, uh, we absolutely have a full bar. We even have a cappuccino machine. So you could come in and uh, open your laptop and have a boozy coffee cocktail on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but uh, the space is even more than that. In fact, we have more than 10,000 square feet, uh, all of which is rentable as the whole or in individual parts. It's, it's very flexible. Now, uh, the legend that started up about you is that, in fact, the whole thing um, devolved from your father and you making limoncello in your garage. Is that true? There's a little bit of truth in every legend, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> there was some garage experimentation that happened, and uh, the concept began back in 2011 or 2012, and uh, it's really because this is something my dad did back in the 1950s, and I gained a great interest in it. And at the same time, I was researching my Italian heritage, uh, and eventually I went to Italy and made some limoncello with my family, and from then on I was, I was truly hooked. Now, it will, it will surprise listeners in Pittsburgh, it will surprise the listeners around the world to know that this really isn't liquor for the first time in Pennsylvania, it's liquor for the second time around because the Whiskey Rebellion back in the 18th century was very, very much the start of things liquid in Pennsylvania and then all of a sudden they were taxed out of existence and it's taken this current generation of young people like Blake to bring it back. And, and here we are now in what is really distillery row. Would I be describing it correctly? I think you nailed it. Um, in, in 2010, the laws began changing that made it feasible for small operations to begin opening up. And primarily what that meant was that uh, a distillery operation could sell bottles and give tastings of their spirit right on site, which was previously illegal. Um, after that, uh, the laws changed again, making it possible to sell full-blown cocktails. And then it changed again 
allowing us to actually sell other uh, our colleagues' uh, products, beer, wine, and spirits. So there, there have been a long string of changes that have happened since 2010. But I love that phrase that you use, distillery. Well, that's what we managed to, to capture <laughs> on our recorder. Uh, and uh, Mark, Blake, if you want to add to that, and I'm sure you will have lots to add since you're getting settled. It's a new venture. Uh, please, we'll just set up another interview and go from there. And Blake, come on back. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, this this is it for this week. And I guess we'll be back again same, same time. time. Same yeah. place next week. Guess, guess, guess what's going to happen right after this program airs? It's, we're going to have gonna a new be, website. We're going to be launching a whole new exciting on-the-menu radio website. So... Uh, You'll have something you can waste your time on all the way from Sunday to Sunday. <laughs> and in the meantime, until next time, when we hope you'll join us, same time, same place, this is Ann and Peter, and saying bye-bye.